0: Welcome to Women and Entheogens, a conversation hosted by moderator JP Harpigny at a Bioneers conference with Carolyn Garcia, Kat Harrison, Maria Vittoria Magnini, and Annie Oak. We hope you enjoy it and we join the conversation as it begins. All right, welcome. Many people ask why we might include a session on psychedelics entheogens whatever terminology you'd like to use, at a conference that is an eco-conference. It's already very hard to get people to be environmentally sensitive and, and concerned about social justice. Why risk going down um, into extremely contentious waters? And um, the reasons are multiple, um, and this is a very big tent. We have a lot of different types of people at Bioneers. We have some very, quote-unquote, straight people, bankers and you know wonderful folks who are you know from red states who don't know what entheogen means. And, um, And then we have other folks who are extremely countercultural, and we try to welcome everyone. So the reason that we do it is, first of all, we have to be intellectually honest. And many of us who got involved in environmental and eco-issues had, to some degree, our awareness awakened by the ingestion of substances of of this, of the type we are about to discuss. And it would be being... You know, untruthful to our own trajectory not to acknowledge that. Now, some of us might no longer use these, and some might, but that's a fact, and so it's an extremely important component. And one reason that we're we've been interested since the very inception of this conference in that issue is that a lot of the people who study um, ethnobotany and also indigenous cultures, some of the indigenous cultures that have the most sophisticated worldviews about ecology, are cultures who tell us that they derive much of their information about the natural world from the natural world itself, from the ingestion of plants and the visionary state. So we take those cultures very seriously. We have an indigenous tent here. We, We have a deep respect for indigenous wisdom, and this is a very important part, component of indigenous wisdom. So that's another reason that we feel compelled to delve into these areas. So let that be enough about that particular topic. The other thing is that it is a tricky area because, as you know, these are substances, not all, but many of them are prescribed. They're illegal in our culture, which is mad. Um, we had a program yesterday about the madness of the war on drugs by the great Ethan Nadelman of the Drug Policy Alliance. If you're not a member of that group or any or another activist group and you're concerned with this issue, something's wrong and you should be a member of the Drug Policy Alliance or some other organization working to change whatever your attitude is about drugs. Our current policies are totally mad, so that's... Uh, Another point. So the genesis of this particular panel, I will tell you a funny little anecdote as quickly as I can. I was at a conference in New York 10 days ago, 12 days ago, um, about uh, legal research, medical research on psychedelics, and as part of that conference, there was a screening of a film about shamanism and, you know, a lot of the talking heads, the usual suspects. One thing I noticed at the end of that film is there hadn't been a single woman in the film. It was all male shaman and shaman scholar talking heads. And then I came home late at night in New York in Brooklyn, turned on the TV, just flicking the dials to relax. And I saw a bit of a documentary, which I'd seen a little bit of a few years ago about the feminist movement and Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, 1848, Seneca Falls. And I was really inspired and stayed up really late, which I do anyway, but I, and and then the next day is when I found out that Jeremy couldn't make it. And the two things clicked together, the reactivation of the feminist, uh, what, you know, when a testosterone adult person like me can, can have a feminist consciousness was uh, awakened. And, uh, and I thought, we've got to do something on women of psychedelics. We have had all-female panels before, but it was when we had the 13 grandmothers here. And that was great, but we wanted people from our own culture. So, I called Kat, who was hard to find because she was on a writer's retreat in Point Reyes. But she said, I know just the greatest women to represent this that you could possibly imagine, and they all happen to be pretty close by. So this is a panel on women and entheogens, women from our own culture, and you know I'm really excited to be able to do this. It's a first at Bioneers, and uh, we are co-sponsoring this with an organization that they are all affiliated with, which is the Women's Visionary Council, which you're gonna hear about a little bit more as we go. This is a premiere, and I'm gonna now introduce you to Kat Harrison, who's going to be the moderator of this panel. And Kat Harrison is probably the person, again, we don't keep statistics on this, who has spoken most frequently at Bioneers over the 20-year period. She's one of our oldest allies and stalwarts. She's a great ethnobotanist and artist, found, co-founder of Botanical Dimensions, um, which is a great little nonprofit that, that works um, in many developing countries um, with botanists and with shamans. Um, and Kat has done extensive field work throughout and... Mexico with the Mazatec and Zapotec, and in, in the Amazon, and she's one of the most deeply knowledgeable people in this field, but she also brings a completely unique, fierce femininity to, to the field of entheogen studies. And so, one of the people I love the most in the world, Kat Harrison is gonna take it from here.
1: Thank you, thank you.
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you JP, and thank you everybody. Well, welcome uh, to the taboo tent. <laughs> um, it's to the credit of pioneers that they do continue to, um, as I was saying to my girlfriends earlier today, to acknowledge their roots, and uh, that, that uh, psychedelics have inspired many parts of the, the blooming uh, and, the, and the new kind of blooms that we've seen in our culture in the last 40 years and um, not everyone acknowledges it. So it's great when we can get together and talk about it. Um, everyone here at the conference, as you know, is talking about their passions. Many of us come to Bioneers in order to be inspired or re-inspired to go back and, and do our good work. And this is one of the sources of inspiration that is time-honored in many cultures and um, relatively new, now two generations in, uh, in our culture. Um, but um, obviously, very important to some of us, and I think uh, has hidden importance that it's it 's really useful to look at so that 's part of what we 're doing today, um, kind of a double taboo in a way because yes we 're all women talking about the women 's perspective on um, this this visionary process and the the uh, lifestyle that um, This has generated for those of us who've taken it very seriously as our life's work, or as at least the inspiration and the nourishment for whatever line of work we have chosen to do in our lives. So um, this is the uh, board of directors here that I'm introducing of uh, the Women's Visionary Council. And uh, that group is just a few years old. It's gone through a couple of transformations. We're going to hear from each of them, and particularly... Um, from Annie Oak uh, who is the original founder about that organization and its work so you'll hear a lot more about that but um, I would say that we're all joined in um, and I am not a member of the the board I am a happy recipient uh, former recipient of of their grant program they have a fund that um, as they can uh, uh, supports the work of women doing some kind of uh, writing, teaching, research in the fields related to vision seeking, and um, so I was able to take some time off and begin writing my book due to their generosity. I'm really grateful for that. Um, These three women all have in common their brilliance, their intellectual brilliance, and also their big hearts. Um, That's what I think of, that's what I feel when I look at them. Um, they're moved to think about how they can help the world. And um, this uh, lifelong investigation into the plants and mushrooms and psychedelic substances of uh, various sorts has been a, you know, an ongoing source of inspiration and um, restoration, I think, when those of us who've been doing a, one kind of activism or another for... Decades, um, we get tired, and um, it's a way of sort of going to the well and remembering why you're doing the work you're doing. And I would say that this group is representative of that. Um, it's also a gendered voice that you will hear because, as as JP said, um, you don't hear from a lot of women about this. Uh, vast and rich field and um, this is a, this, this organization, the Women's Visionary Council, is a way of beginning to balance that. So I really appreciate that and um, I want to first introduce to you Carolyn Garcia. She also goes by the name of Mountain Girl and um, has for a very long time, many of you know her or know of her through her uh, early associations with the Mary Pranksters. And long association with the Grateful Dead and her, um, gosh, her great big persona that people just adore, honestly. (laughs) And so do I. I was fortunate to get to know Carolyn back in the mid-1980s through botany, actually, because she has a biology and botany background. And she wrote a book, which is still in print, called The Primo Plant. Um, You can guess which plant that might be in this culture, a how to grow book. And um, it's a wonderful little handbook. And I was moved by it myself in those days and putting on my first ethnobotany conference and invited her and we got to be friends. So it's been great. She's also a director as well as of the Women's Visionary Council of the Further Foundation and the Rex Foundation, all doing really good work, Um, a very generous soul. And so she's gonna say some words.
3: My little journey to this place today started really back in 1964, which, by golly, you know, 45 years ago, was um, my first psychedelic experience as a as a, uh, a lab assistant at Stanford University Organic Chemistry Lab. Um, there was quite a lot going on there at the time. There was. Palo Alto was a very interesting place to have landed as a teenager. Um, there was just a tremendous ferment uh, with both with, uh, in, the psycho- in the psychology community had gotten its hands on various uh, psychoactive substances and were experimenting both scientifically and privately and publicly. Um, the CIA, uh, the, the VA hospital, there was quite a lot of psychedelic research of various kinds going on in Palo Alto in the early 60s. Um, I just happened to fall into the middle of that without really realizing where that trajectory was going to take me. Of course, being a, a children, a child of scientists, I had a scientific, a very inquisitive nature, a scientific inquis- inquisition, and I wanted to know exactly where all of this was going to take us. Um, and so, leapt on the first opportunity that I had to explore. Um, the Palo Alto community, of course, was was sort of the, the womb out of which so much of the West Coast psychedelic culture did emerge eventually. So one of the things that happened to me right away was I got involved with the Merry Pranksters and we began to put on parties which evolved into events called the acid tests. And the acid tests were, were a genuine Attempt to break down the the barrier between audience and performer, so that the audience became the performance. So that personal, you know, your personal uh, journey over the course of an evening was all part of the part of the same deal. We were all there together. We were all performers. Um, this was this was uh, consciousness raising, a la 1965. Uh, by 19 by 1966 we had in San Francisco an incredible collaborative event called the Trips Festival which um, if you have gray hair you may recall you may have been there it was it was one of those sold out events that everybody came to everybody wrote about um, with everybody brought stuff to they brought their gadgets and their music machines and their lighting systems and all the all the toys and gadgets that they'd been working on sort of privately beca- suddenly became um, in the public spotlight at the Trips Festival. But at the, around that same time, the pranksters began to get in serious legal trouble. And um, our founder, Ken Kesey, just fled the country. So we were, we were sort of left without a, without a program. And we went on with the acid tests and took them to Los Angeles, San Diego, Um, And then we went over the border into Mexico to, well, we were sort of just moving quickly. (laughs) And um, we spent six months in Mexico, relaxing after a very trying period. And um, when we came back, um, the Haight-Ashbury had begun to flower. And the Golden Gate Park began to fill up with people with kids and puppies and uh, free food and, you know, flowers and all of, the, of the, sort of the marvelous, magical aspects of the early psychedelic movement. Um, the psychedelic shop was open on Haight Street. This was, a, this was a precious time, but it was a very short time. And it, there was an idealism, very rampant we all believed certain things. We thought that, you know, here was our new way, here was our, our cultural imperative, that we, we, we needed to s- sort of organize, but that didn't really happen. We were not organizable. <laughs> you know, basic, and basic, and that, you know, that led into sort of the masses started to get high. And, and, and when I sort of joined up with the Grateful Dead family, that became even more massive. The, the Grateful Dead shows became large open-air experiments where a lot of the audience was experimenting with various kinds of substances. We're not really sure what all they were. I'm not sure if they knew. <laughs> you know, and the other thing about the large events and the 25,000 people events was that no one took any responsibility for how people ended their trips, how people got home, how, how, how their life path might have been altered by being at one of these events. We, we will never know. You know, it was, this was so experimental and so sort of life-altering for a lot of people. Um, the, the stories are still coming out. The stories are still, still have yet to be told. You know, and I feel like as, as we get older, you know, hopefully folks are gonna be more forthcoming about how their how their life path altered during that period. So many people have also spent significant prison time for their experimental youth. You know, it's just it's just a huge price that's been paid. And it's still being paid. And I and in in that light, caution is still the watchword of the day. We have you know, 45 years later. You know, we're here to share our experience. And most importantly, to encourage each other along the way. Encouragement and consciousness expansion can't be wrong. You know, we have, we've all learned things. We've all seen things. We all know stuff we didn't know before. And I, and I encourage everybody to be kind to each other and, and share the stories of their journey and I, and, I, and I ask you, you know, what, what of this experience is cultural? What of this experience is personal? What of this experience is spiritual? And what of it is scientific? And these things all blend together at the edges when you throw entheogens into the mix. This all blends and becomes fractal. And, you know, whether there's 25,000 people or five people sitting together, breathing together, listening to the universe together, in this way, we, we approach opening the heart and to be able to see with your heart. This is the journey and the goal. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Carolyn. Um, Our next speaker is Maria, Maria Vittoria Mangini, also known as Hidden Mountain. And uh, she has a long history as a midwife and became then a nurse and has been a nurse for a long time and eventually um, worked through her Ph.D. in nursing, writing her dissertation on the subject of those of us of... uh, for the earlier generation who had taken uh, psychedelics and how it had affected our lives. Her dissertation is called, Yes, My Mom Took Acid. <laughs> <laughs> UC San Francisco, tough school to get through and she did it beautifully on this topic. She's also a long time uh, way back, right, from the origins member of the hog farm and wild oak ranch and land manager of some sort there. and. Um, and she's currently a marijuana researcher, medical marijuana, and uh, with a particular interest in pain management and alleviating pain, which more of us, as we get older, are also thinking about. So it's a really great um, adjunct to this area, the work that Maria doing.
4: Well, thank you, Kat. Um you can tell probably by my name that i'm of italian origin and uh in my early upbringing i was raised in a very comprehensive version of the roman catholic church i went to catholic school until i was in 12th grade um i was or i was still in catholic school and i was still a member of the Sodality of mary when i first took lsd Because of that, I had a very well-developed and grounded kind of vocabulary for describing certain kinds of categories of experience. I knew that God was in everything. I knew that God could see everything that went on in the world. I knew that there were times in the history of human beings in which people had had what were called preternatural gifts in which they could make themselves as big as the sky, or they could travel across time and place, or they could talk to animals, but that somehow those things had been lost. And, you know, you could think of it as like the apple caught in our throats, you know? When I first began to have my early encounters with LSD, I was actually one of those people who went to one of those parties that Mountain Girl was talking about. I was 16 in 1966, I had never been drunk. I had never experienced any alternate state of consciousness other than sleep and dreaming. And I went to the Trips Festival with a woman from my Girl Scout troop who <laughs> gave me LSD. And I would never have thought of taking I would never have thought of smoking marijuana in those days because I had been very carefully educated that if you smoke marijuana you'd become a heroin addict. But nobody told me any, and nobody knew anything about LSD. So I took it kind of without recognizing that it might have an effect on me. And I had an experience of such indescribable truthfulness that its truthfulness refuted every other bit of anything I had ever experienced up to that time. I remember thinking to myself, if this is not real, then there is nothing That could possibly be real. This is the most real thing there is. One of the things that had occurred to me during that time was that death, which I had been kind of raised to accept as a kind of going home in my Catholic schooling, but to be rather frightened of and to think of as a great sort of looming disaster that could happen to you, uh, was actually perfectly safe. And that that was kind of a, a big giggle that people had taught us about death in that way, but there were there were all kinds of other things that that sort of showed up for me in that experience, which because I had been given a framework for understanding certain kinds of human mind states, i didn 't think of as losing my mind. I thought of them as being s- seated in god 's lap um, now. Just parenthetically, I'm going to sort of leave my personal history and talk a little bit about my research. I, um, uh, when I was writing my dissertation, one of the things I wanted to know was how many people in the age group that I was interested in—these are all people who would be now age 55 or older—had actually taken LSD. And there's 40 million people who are aged 55 or older who have taken LSD that we know about. Um, One of the other interesting statistics that I found out was that emergency room mentions of LSD actually peaked in 1971. But use of LSD in the United States didn't peak until 1974. So something was happening there. And what I think was happening is that there was developing what you might call an informed user subculture. There were people increasingly who had had psychedelic experiences and who could recognize that what was going on for people when they were having them was not that they were losing their mind. And that in fact, it was just a, it was the thing that that William James talks about when he says, separated by the thinnest of veils, you know, it's like right there, you could just reach out and touch it. And that's, and that, that people could return to their ordinary state of consciousness, maybe with a vision that they would bring back from the top of the peak where they had been of what the panorama of what was below might look like. But nevertheless, they could come back. Now I think that's very important because I think that informed user subculture is, because there are so many of us, um, available to have a certain kind of um, impact on society. So you might ask yourself, where are they? You know, like, where did they go, given that there are so many of them? Well, that's another thing that showed up in my dissertation to a certain extent, which was that people didn't not talk about these experiences because they were frightened, because they thought that they were going to be discredited, because they were afraid of being arrested. They talked about them because they didn't have relevance to the lives that they were leading in the here and now. And I want to say that... For myself, not only did I have a context for these experiences where I didn't feel like I was going crazy, and so I I sort of escaped the crash and burn thing that happened to a lot of my contemporaries, but I also have been fortunate that I've lived most of my adult life in an environment where there were other people who had had these experiences, who valued them, and who recognized that they opened a person to a certain kind of uh, capacity. For insight, for vision, for creativity, for self-expression, for open-heartedness, for understanding that everything that is here on the earth with us is alive. So I have I have it highly to recommend the the, the persistence of living one's life in a community of people who practice these perceptual capacities and validate them in other people and encourage them, even though I think, as one of the speakers said this morning, that it's very difficult to create community, it's difficult to get people to work together at any level, it's absolutely worth the effort that it takes to do that. Um, I I, I would just like to say one other thing, and that is that, you know, those of you who are not of the gray-haired generation, are probably sick to death of hearing about the Boomers and all the incredibly valid experiences that they all had, but you know, whatever you think about that, there are a lot of them, and um, they're getting close to the end of life now, and their concerns are different from the ones that they had earlier in their lives, and I do think that in that context the salience of these experiences is going to reemerge, and that we may actually see some social manifestation that we haven't seen yet of what it means to know and understand the truthfulness of the fact of divine presence in every aspect of our everyday lives. Now I said I was only gonna say one more thing, but actually it was two. The other one, uh, Carolyn alluded to, which is that um, she talked about the cultural container, and I feel like that's an important thing to reference here because there are a good many cultural contexts in which these medicines are really revered. This is one of the reasons that I think so highly of LSD, because I feel like we are the cultural container for the use of LSD. We thought it up. We, we made it up, and we're not using anybody else's vocabulary. We're creating our own vocabulary and so uh, I'm happy to say yes, mom took acid.
2: Thank you, Maria. And um, gosh, I must have scared them. there. I told them not to talk over 12 minutes and they're all like running away. <laughs> so we'll get more from them. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to say um, in response to your last point there that I feel that that same way, that part of the way that our generation took back birth and made it alive and natural and a wonderful positive thing again had to do very much with our psychedelic discoveries that we were making at, in that period as we went out into the childbearing age of life and now as we approach death we have the opportunity to take back death as well with that awareness um, that we've collectively gained and and, uh, that's a big piece of work that we could do very beautifully in the coming years. So our next speaker is um, Annie Oak and um, she is the founder of the Women's Visionary Council. She will tell you about how that came to be. She has a long history as a journalist and uh, and a very insightful and edgy journalist investigating all sorts of, uh, of the sticky edges of culture. And um, she's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur at this stage in her life. Always an activist for uh, consciousness expansion and uh, a drug policy activist. She's got a great head for the politics, the social politics, and a feminist as well. And uh, that's one reason she's the founder of this very interesting organization, Annie Oak.
5: I'd like to thank you all for being here with us today. I want to talk a little bit about um, why I thought it was important for women to speak out about psychedelics and also about medical cannabis. I would like to include that in our conversation as well. Uh, I've been a journalist for a long time. and I've always been interested in psychedelic substances and cannabis as helpful tools for healing, for spiritual reflection, for self-knowledge, to help us cultivate joy and wonder in this world and to bring us closer to a feeling of connectedness with all things and all beings. Now, I've been interested in this topic as a journalist. I worked for a long time covering issues regarding drug policy reform, scientific investigations about the healing uses of psychedelics and cannabis, and the psychedelic community. In my travels as a journalist, I attended a lot of conferences and gatherings, and I noticed something extraordinary about all of these events that I went to that I just really didn't understand. There were very, very few women, typically, on the program. And I thought to myself, well, why, why is this? You know, I know. Or, uh, wide range of women doing very interesting and important work with these substances and I just could not understand why so few women were represented at these gatherings, these conferences, these colloquiums. And so instead of simply writing news stories pointing this out I decided that one of the things I've learned from psychedelics in my own journeys is that we have the power of manifestation. that you can take these experiences and integrate them into your own consciousness and use that energy to manifest things in the world. So I decided when I retired temporarily from reporting three years ago to go work in Silicon Valley that I was going to tithe my income like my parents tithe their income and give that to the church, that I was going to tithe my own income, and that I was going to take some of that money and form a gathering called the Women's Visionary Congress, where women, and also men, has always been open to men, to our male allies, could come together and talk about our experiences with psychedelics, with cannabis and that women who are doing work in these fields could present their work and that people could participate in discussions about their own experiences. And we have been putting on this gathering now for three years and it's been a really wonderful and transformative event and I'm very honored to be part of this. Last year I asked these two wonderful women to join with me to form a nonprofit organization called the Women's Visionary Council. And we formed this nonprofit to make sure that the Women's Visionary Congress continues. We're now in the process of bringing regional salons to various places around the country where women and men want to gather and talk about their experiences with these substances. And importantly, how they take this knowledge that they've gained from these experiences and apply that knowledge to their work in the world, whether they're healers or activists or artists or researchers or whatever work that they do. And another intention of this gathering and these salons is to involve the elders in our community who have a lot of knowledge and have a place, a respectful and comfortable place where the elders can pass along knowledge to younger people, because we lack those opportunities in our culture often, where that kind of knowledge is passed along, and I think that's a very important effort that we must sustain. so we formed this nonprofit, the women 's Visionary Congress, and We continue to bring together women healers, researchers, activists, and artists. We just had our third Women's Visionary Congress at Black Oak Ranch up in Laytonville. Mm -hmm. Earlier this month, uh, from October 2nd to 4th, and it was a very moving and transformative gathering. The event is open to the public. We're riding a very fine line between creating a sacred and safe and respectful place and making it open to the public. I don't do any mainstream press outreach. I've been a reporter long enough to have a clear sense of when the press is your friend and when it's not your friend. I haven't really felt the need to do that. We don't do a lot of marketing and advertising. Largely, it's a word of mouth event and we also put out the announcement on mailing lists And every year, 20 women, and often a few men, speak. And uh, about 20 men and women volunteer. And about uh, 40 participants show up. It's been an event for about 80 people. And what I've discovered in this gathering is there's a really strong desire for people to talk about their experiences. And there are very few opportunities in our culture to do that. And so we create and hold space for people to have those experiences and share that information and especially, as I said, for the elders to really come forward and share their insights. Um, It's been um, an interesting journey doing this. Um, You know, the community of wise women who understand and work with plants is a community that has been persecuted for a long time long time, a long time. And it's very important to understand that we have a right to gather, that we have a right to speak, that we have a right to really make it known that we are people who choose to change our consciousness and expand our consciousness, and that we are not criminals and that we are not sick, and that we are not irresponsible people. And I think that's a very important message to carry forward. (laughs) And I want to end just by saying this. This is a civil rights movement. This is a civil rights movement. This is a movement of people who are among the last communities to really claim their civil rights. And in all civil rights movement, it involves struggle and it involves risk and it involves the need for real bravery and and rectitude and, and real intention to be able to go forward and say, this is who I am This is what I believe in, and that we have every right to choose to change and expand our consciousness to become better people and better stewards of the earth and kinder to one another. And and in doing that, we have a responsibility to each other to hold space for that to happen and to be thoughtful and cautious about how we expose one another and how we should respect each other's privacy in making that information public. And we're learning about that. I will tell you I am not a fan of social networking. If you go to our Facebook site, it says, do not friend us. (laughs) I really oppose the aggregation of personal data. I work in Silicon Valley. I don't like that. Please don't tell Google everything about your interior world for them to sell that data it's just silly
6: you
5: know, silly and um, and I, I invite you to uh, to join us for uh, the women's visionary Congress for our local salons and I especially want to thank our friends and supporters without without whose support and whose um, kindness and understanding of what we're doing on this mission, we we could not have gotten to this point. And if you would like to help support this project and our future events, we would be grateful. And I thank you.
2: Thank you, Annie. Thank you, everyone, for your attention. I'm going to give a little talk and then we'll open it up to questions. Um, and I don't think you mentioned the website, did you? Uh, www.visionarycongress.org um, if you want to look up what they're, what they're up to. Um, I think this is one of the, uh, well there are so many important points, but one of them that Annie was just referring to Uh, reminded me to say this about the path I've chosen. Um, Wherever these psychoactive, spiritual medicines, as they're often known, these medicine plants and mushrooms occur in the world and other cultures, the people who take the risky choice of working with them and becoming visionaries and healers and guides and for their tribe or their, their region. Um, those people are respected. They become you know, treasured uh, the, the eyes and ears that every culture has traditionally felt they needed to help those who are not taking that path understand how to live in better harmony with their environment, with each other. Um, how to go through the stages of life, how to be initiated into adulthood, how to be initiated into death—all of these things um, are part of the medicine person's way, and they're respected for it. So it's only the Americans and Euro-Americans—I I should say—these these, these uh, recent cultures, post LSD, where yes, a medicine, I. I I have said before, I like to think that all the medicine, plants, and mushrooms got together in the world, because I'm I'm an animist, so I really do believe everything's alive and talking to each other, and they all got together, and it's like, what about those Americans? They're not listening to anything, you know, and someone said, and they said, I know, they need a pill. They like pills. (laughs) So out of that, (laughs) reality conjured up LSD, and now we're able to talk about these things too, but... um, But then, of course, it led us to look beyond and to look at the model for this that exists in other cultures and among our own ancestors, all our ancestors um, all over the world, whether or not we happen to have ancestors from a region with a lot of psychedelic plants or not, all of them knew how to work with magic and fire and vision and dreams and um, energy and, and uh, collective consciousness. Um, and, and so we're remembering that in this halting way under the shadow of it being illegal and naughty and you know degenerate and all that stuff that gets tossed this way. And yet, as Maria said, some of us knew the moment we met it, this is the real world. This is what they say in the, in the peyote way, as they say, when we're, the Native Americans who, do, who follow that road say, when we're on the peyote road, we are in the real world. The world we're in every day is the illusionary world. And so we have to return to the real world periodically to remember what it is and to have clear vision about how to work in the very confusing and complex illusion of everyday life. Therefore, I've chosen to work by spending as much time investigating other cultures that have these medicine traditions and hanging out with the people of knowledge, as they're called in different languages, those who have um, made it their deepest passion to try to understand at least a few threads of the, the rich, rich other way of seeing everything and um, and my field work in different cultures and working with different um, experts and taking the medicines and praying with them and seeking vision with them and retching with them and all of those things that that we do cleansing you know um, well I just wouldn't trade it for anything it's just fantastic um, but it it's I feel that um, I can still say this at this point in 2009, um, that there is so much value in these traditions of working with uh, psychedelic medicine that we could apply to our lives here and now if we pay more attention to them. That if you look at a culture as the Mazatecs in Mexico and many of the people in the Amazon and the Andes of South America, people who for thousands of years, hundreds of generations have worked with these things, have talked openly with each other about it, have explored the pitfalls and found the strengths and heard the songs and passed them on. It's just such an important model. It's not that we imitate them, that we do anything exactly like them, but the, the, kind, the ways of relating to that normally invisible and sometimes exquisitely present world uh, are, those are archetypal ways, there are archetypal energies there and things that actually in different cultures in my study of comparative worldviews, that that I see are universal and so for those of us who are still who are younger and who are still exploring in this realm I encourage you to realize that we don't all have to be um, just sort of like the first time in the car on the freeway and nobody ever taught us to drive. You know, it, it's, it, there are actually are people of knowledge and traditions of knowledge. And now, 40-some years into it in this culture, there are some of us who, who have that knowledge too. But um, to educate yourself and to also know that you're working in, you know, a morphogenetic field, if you know what that is, a groove that's already been created in reality... For this kind of work, and it's uh, um, it just resonates through you. And can I always find? Give me not only uh, rebalance me since the last time I visited that road. But um, I, one thing I wanted to mention is it's it's it is what helps us see nature. It really is how we tune in to see that everything is alive and in a grand conversation, and we're just a little part of that conversation. And I, 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 to this day, find that these medicines are just dazzling with information about nature. And since this is an ecologically-oriented group and are, we're probably all sensitive to those issues, um, uh, it's a wonderful tradition in itself that these people who have been doing this for so long also have been in tune with their environment, and it helps us to be more in tune with our environment. And on the human side, I find that the uh, the mending, that's what I was going to say, that I look around at the people that I know and the, that I love and the work that I'm doing and my students, and, um, and I think about where there's a gap, where there's somebody who's hungry, where there's someone who's off balance, where just a little rebalancing might help them, and, and th- th- I think of that as my mending basket, that I get out my mending basket during that session and I notice, I just really look and notice, and then just in your daily life, you weave it in, it's not, you know, it's, it's not really dramatic, it's more of a refining of awareness, and I think that's part of the tradition of these kind of medicines, so some of these ways that they have helped people, in other cultures over a long time can be applied in ours as well. And, um, and it's part, I think, of the feminine way of seeing things, to think about the garden, to think about the children, to think about the elders, to do the mending, to think about cleansing the people who are too burdened, and, and to do that for yourself as well. So men or women, um, it's, uh, it's, the, it's a wonderful aspect of this work. Thank you. So if um, any of you have either specific questions, do you want to place to one of us or to all of us, and it's my job to kind of hand the questions around, Um, line up here at the microphone, because we are being recorded, so you don't have to give your social security number. And um, (laughs) keep it short, yes. We all love trip stories, but not today on your microphone, okay? (laughs) And... um, (laughs) <laughs> and if you want to just offer a topic for us to, to discuss between ourselves, in front of you, we will also do that. We like to talk. Okay, thanks. What's the first question?
7: Well, first, first, I just want to say I'm delighted and grateful. I had no idea that this was what this was going to be about, and it's wonderful. And uh, uh, um, experience with these medicinal plants and and drugs are all were really a part of my early life and informed and inspired me and, and taught me many things. And w- one of the places I went and experienced it was in training in Montessori education in India and learned that Maria Montessori's dissertation was on psychedelics, hallucinogenics. And I, I, at, when I was learning that, I thought, yes, which, her, one of her biggest message was really look, look at the child. Mm. And a lot of her theories were based on really seeing the development stages and all of that of the child. Anyway, and, it, and that those experiences also inform my
2: art today as an artist. Mm. So, thank you. Thank you. very interesting to see where all the threads, the threads of the psychedelics are in our culture. If they, for one day, became visible, wouldn't that be interesting? If we could see the fabric of our world society and actually see how much of it was inspired or affected by that, that would be, let's, do, let's make that movie where it becomes visible for one day. <laughs>
4: yes, hi. hi. Um. That was really amazing what we just heard. (laughs) And thank you for being here today. I'm so excited that there's a women's panel on this. And my question is about um, nursing mothers and um, do we abstain? (laughs) Or is there any information or experience about um, if you can do any of these experiences
3: while you're nursing or while you're pregnant or any of that? I'm just abstaining right now, but I'd like some information about it. (laughs) Well, I can address that from a personal point of view. Um, nursing while high is uh, pretty, pretty intense. It's very physically <laughs> intense. Um, it, uh, it's very memorable. <laughs> I don't think I did, I only cut, tried it a few times. It was just, it just didn't, you know, it didn't seem quite right to me. But I don't know about whether the, um, whether the actual substance comes through, the milk ducts or not. And I'm going to defer that question to Maria.
4: That's a big question, and it has a lot to do with what substance you're talking about. It has a lot to do with the pH of milk, with the pH of your blood. That's a, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult question to answer in a general way. And I think that the research environment around this kind of thing is so um straightened by the the social reprehension of these substances that it's really difficult to get good information it would be really interesting to understand where drugs some of these drugs are distributed in body fluids and that's actually how you would find out about that um, in general i think most people would, would be, try to err on the side of abstemiousness where you know distributing drugs to little children is concerned um, I, did, I, I will say one thing about this, I, I'm, I'm cautiously not going to say this by way of recommendation, but I'm going to just tell you the truth as I know it. I asked a woman, we old woman, who had a bunch of small children, that I saw in the peyote environment, um, if she gave peyote to her ch- little nursing child, and she said, oh no, he gets enough in the milk.
8: That was, that was kind of part two, is there, is there any indigenous wisdom or experience about that that's,
2: thing? That's the extent to which I know any of that. And I, I know there are some traditions in, I haven't seen it myself, but in South America where, um, as in many cultures, a baby isn't really considered to have fully arrived until it's third day of life, you know? Uh, that's kind of a global uh, phenomenon. And so on that third day of life, they give them just a little, you know, tiny bit of ayahuasca. And that's the welcoming, welcome to the world of knowledge.
4: But, you know, there are, there are traditions about how and when children should partake of certain things that are part of traditional cultures. Navajo children don't aren't considered to be really fully here until they laugh, for example, and that's when they start feeding them corn and salt and other things that people eat. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a big question, and I don't think I have an adequate answer for it myself.
9: Um, I'm Marsha Rosenbaum, and uh, 22 years ago, I had the great honor and privilege of um, conducting the first federally funded sociological study of MDMA. I want to share a couple of things about that, really briefly. One is that it didn't matter. We interviewed 100 people who came from a lot of different places, from deadheads to students to people into uh, seeking higher consciousness to Dallas Republicans. I kid you not. And it didn't matter where they came from. Where they all went was to a place where their hearts opened up. It was a phenomenal thing to listen to and learn about, and that one that one substance. But also, back in 1987, the culture, as MG or Maria was talking about user culture, and there were explicit instructions out there about how to take this substance, what to do, what not to do, how much to eat, having water, um, not getting overheated and dehydrated, as is what happened in the late 1990s with the rave scene that brought the government really down on that substance. So I want to echo the importance of a user subculture and passing information on to people because it's really valuable, not just in terms of health, but in terms of um, not getting yourself arrested. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
2: Thank you. I, I just want to say that um, in, I know in at least one of your congresses that you've had harm reduction people there mm-hmm. and that whole concept of harm reduction where these substances are out there, all sorts of them, and they need to be, uh, the knowledge of how to use them and what to do and what not to do uh, needs to be there too to go along with them. Yeah.
3: And I'd like to mention the Arrowwood org site on the internet which has a lot of this kind of information. Um, it's one of the most visited sites by, um, by law enforcement as well as everybody is sort of on a learning curve um, along with the subculture about all these different substances that have appeared in the last 40 years.
2: Mm-hmm. That's arrowid, erowid.org It's a great um, site for learning all sorts of details about all of this.
5: Yeah, I'd like to add that um, among the grants that we have given out as a a group, um, Fire Arrowhead received one of those grants because we value her work really highly as the co-creator of the Arrowhead website.
10: Hi. Um, There's a book by, uh, I think his name is Peter Cohen, called Plant Medicine. And in it he, um, sorry, Elliot Cohen, I'm sorry. Um, in it, he, he says that um, homeopathy and, and shamanism arrive at the same information by different means. And in homeopathy, they do it by provings, where you take the substance and what it causes in yourself, it will cure, whereas a shaman will go and, and do a spirit you know, tour, you know, visit the plant and, and learn from the plant and so forth. And so, um, so homeopathy is one way to... Um, and actually, you learn that every substance is psychoactive. There isn't any substance that isn't psychoactive if, it's, if, if the energy is, you know, if you do the, the, the um, trituration and, and, you know, of the substance to a certain level, you'll get to a point where it is psychoactive. Whether it's salt or whether it's, you know, ayahuasca, it's, there, there's a psychoactive property to everything. So everything is talking to us. You um, just have to tune into it. And, Thank you. Um, the other, one, one last point is that every substance, there's a primary action of the substance, which can be a lift or it can be a, you know, a downer or whatever, but then there's a secondary reaction of the vital force. So you have to expect that there's going to be a, a polar response to whatever you take. And so that's something to be aware of.
2: So. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I found in uh, the traditional cultures I've worked with that they, think of um, a session with one of these plants or mushrooms as a great opening. You're opening yourself up, you're opening the top of your head to the spirits from above, you're opening yourself, all your senses and your super senses to the world around you and so it's very important for three days after a session to reseal yourself and um, they drink certain kinds of teas that are the antidotes, cinnamon tea, is what you drink after mushrooms, for instance, because it's warming and closing, and you try not to go out. You try to stay in and just be quiet and be with it, and not open your door up to strangers and not be in chaotic scenes for a few days because you're vulnerable. You want to be vulnerable, to get the knowledge. That's the whole point, become as vulnerable as you can. And then to be safe and wise, uh, don't let yourself get sort of polluted by the chaos outside. So. That's just like practical knowledge that we should have in our tradition as well, in our still fledgling tradition.
4: Kat, yeah? I, I think that actually speaks to the former question about exposure of children either through milk mm-hmm. or some mm-hmm. other kind of method. Robinson Davies, whom I think some people would say was the most um, uh, pr- prominent or wonderful Canadian novelist and whose work I really love once said, it's useful to, t- to become somebody before you set about trying to become nobody. And when you talk about the psychedelic experience mm-hmm. as, a, as an opening, you think about how open little children already are. It just doesn't mm-hmm. seem like they really need to be a lot more open than they are already. They're in a buzzing global sensorium that isn't organized very well. So I think that's got something to do with it also.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes. Hi. Thank
11: you so much for making yourself available as elders. Um, in the North American community. Hello. Um. You can tip it. I really value what you're offering, and my path has been inspired and informed by my initial and continued use of plant medicines. Um, But I feel like young people have this sensation of being pioneers, like they they don't have elders that they can look to unless they travel to South America or travel somewhere. so they end up, you know, reading a lot on the internet and reading a lot of books, and I happened to do that. It was an intellectual sort of exploration, but it was sort of alone, and I didn't feel like there was community around it. Um, so I guess my questions are, how, as, the ne- as this generation and the next generation, can we carry on the work that you're doing in a way that... Um, encourages not only an intellectual expansion and respect for this work, but um, the heart-centered aspect of this work. And and I look at um, what I've read and what I've heard, stories about the initial psychedelic pop and culture, and I wonder, um, how can we inspire some grassroots level of uh, creating a shift and an awareness of the potential of expanding our consciousness and the sense of responsibility to all life that comes with that.
2: Good question.
3: Ooh. (laughs) I was um, reminded that, um, just to paraphrase P.T. Barnum, there's a seeker born every minute. (laughs) you're a true seeker and that you know it you know once you know something you know it and you in order to be honest with yourself you sort of learn how to operate from that knowing and so in order to build community around around this new cultural paradigm that we find ourselves in it's, that's a good trick i mean we it's very hard to do but what we the only really True thing we can do is speak to each other truly from the heart with kindness, so not to injure. You know, it almost sounds like you know proto Buddhism what I'm talking about here, but it's but it's, it. You know, there's there's it's just like talking to the person next to you in line at the grocery store, someone you're never gonna see again, never seen them before, and and looking at each person. Honestly and openly with your with your full senses, all your senses and using that, and you 'll find a way
4: and, and I would like to add I think that I think these substances are sacred, and I think that keeping in your field of view their sacredness really helps a lot, and not treating them as playthings because um, If you get enough of them, they'll tell you that they're more serious than that. I'd like to say something about community.
5: Um, Many years ago, when I was a young seeker, I um, had uh, the fortune to be part of a uh, women's psychedelic study group on the East Coast when I lived there. And uh, there were five of us, and we met uh, almost every week to talk about the reading that we were doing and uh, some of our internal thoughts about this path. And I found it uh, to be a very helpful and useful form of immediate community. And um, one day, I I met a woman who lived on the West Coast. And um, she said, you know, we're having a private gathering of psychedelic women on the West Coast, would your small women psychedelic study group like to send an envoy <laughs> to our private gathering? And none of us had any money at all. We were very young, and so we pooled our money, and we sent one envoy from the East Coast to the West Coast, and I was that envoy, and so I had the absolute privilege of suddenly meeting a whole community of psychedelic women at a private gathering. And I will tell you that that experience changed my life profoundly. And I felt very fortunate. And I went back to my psychedelic study group and I reported back and all the things that I had learned. And um, I found that to be a very useful structure. And that informed my decision to form the Women's Visionary Congress as well.
0: My question might not be as relevant now based on what you just said, but I I, I was kind of wondering, um, research, if it's to be believed, shows that the first introduction to drugs or alcohol uh, for most girls is their boyfriends. And I'm wondering if, if... That's true, and I know it's not disaggregated by psychedelic, but you had mentioned earlier um, the relative rarity of women's voices in psychedelic leadership, research, promulgation. Um, I guess my question is, aside from the fact that we are in a patriarchal society, if we can set that aside, what are the other reasons for why male voices dominate this field so much?
5: I actually think that there are a couple of, of reasons why um, you see relatively few women speaking up about psychedelics in public gatherings. Um, One is that um, women as a group are more vulnerable to legal prosecution. They have children who could be taken away from them, and that sometimes happens in legal cases, we know that. They have licenses, to practice as healers and those licenses could be threatened. They make less money in general, we know that, and therefore are not as able to hire strong legal representation to defend themselves. And if they are harassed or arrested by law enforcement, they have less information to trade. You know how the system works. You become an informant, you give us information and we let you go. Well often women simply have less information to trade. And in addition to that, you know, there's a very long tradition of women with this knowledge being the subject of serious harassment. And there is a really deep quiet subculture that has formed for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and we all know this. And it's a it's something worth remembering. And remaining cautious about and thinking about carefully.
4: Maria? Um, I think there's also a contribution to be made by the idea of trying to organize a conference around scientific approaches to this um, experience and phenomenon. And the notion of what counts as science in Western culture is pretty limited. I think uh, a lot of people who had come to a a meeting like this one, recognize that indigenous science is quite rigorous, it has quite a lot of rules, it's very likely to produce reliable data, but it's not the same thing as empiricism. And I think that if you have a, uh, a, 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 a field of presentation in which the, the standard of what counts as important information is empirical information, you're going you're gonna to get the answers to the questions you're asking.
3: Yeah, and i think women have just generally taken a support role and are are less likely to boldly stand up and state their position they're a little bit more circumspect and careful because as annie said they have quite they they feel more grounded in the community and feel like they have more to protect and um but we've you know i i certainly didn't wait around for my boyfriend to try stuff so <laughs> 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 you know i i think that you know, I think personality types uh, are, are definitely a part of this thing that, that some people are just bound and determined to try something new and uh, those, those hopefully, those women we hope will speak up and, and be part of the general conversation.
2: And I'd like to um, address a, a hopefully positive tangent off that good question. Which is um, one of the trickiest uh, parts of this taboo territory is parenting if you're a psychedelic parent or a pro cannabis parent, and you have children coming up into the preteens and you know they're getting you know some incarnation of just say no at school and you know that they're going to meet it behind the barn which is the tradition you know in our culture for trying out new things, kids handing it to other kids so talking to your children or for some of us, it might even be grandchildren um, about how there are these very powerful among you know the whole all the kinds of pills that are out there now and all that there are these these kinds that are psychedelics and telling them about this category and that there are traditions and it's considered sacred and it's very powerful and there's a way to do it and a time in life it's an initiation into adulthood to tell them the stories it's like fascinating folk tales of our ancestors or from other cultures so so that they have some information. And if they're offered you know, a dose of ecstasy or something, they have a little bit of information to make a decision, at least. Is this kind of like that thing my mom told me about? Maybe I should find out more about it. And wait, maybe I want to be like not with a whole bunch of guys in a car when I take it, or whatever, you know? And <laughs> <laughs> so, but that's where we have to be brave enough to walk our talk or one of the very, I, I learn a lot in little aphorisms, that's what comes to me and how I remember things. And I was in—I was very young when I, in the psychedelic era, when I first got the one, show what you know. And, and so what we're learning from these things over the years, it's our responsibility, I think, to show them. And we don't have to be big and loud and, you know, overwhelming about it, but walk your talk is, is a, more recent version of that, and that's with your children as well. Thank you so much. Um, There's a popular myth that substance use will lead to abuse and addiction, and we all know that
4: that's not the whole truth. But at the same time, myself and my community, I've seen so many of
5: my peers go from the open-minded idealism of consciousness opening to using cocaine and heroin and, and other drugs to become jaded and numb. How can we, do you have any advice for how we can in our communities protect the
4: sacred nature of these drugs without being alienating or sanctimonious or judgmental? It's hard to know what drugs are going to get people into trouble and what people are going to get into trouble with drugs. Mm -hmm. And uh, people do actually come to me in a setting like this one, not uncommonly, and ask me, should I do this? And I think that's like asking somebody if you could kiss them. If you have to ask, the answer is no. So I, I think that's something that, that we could work to help people develop is the ability to, to what does the Sufis say? To heed that voice that constantly cometh from within. Mm-hmm.
2: Discernment. Mm-hmm. Discernment as I think, one word for that too. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else?
3: It's just, you know, that is a path that people take. And they go from, from the high and the light to the, to the laid low and, and gutted and, you know, brain practically dead. I don't know why that happens. I never wanted to do that. I don't get it. <laughs> that's, that's, but we just have to, we have to hold what we know. You know, hold our own truth sort of separate from that world. And, and try to keep the dismay at bay because, because really most of us here in this room know better. And if only there was a way to, to show people what they could so easily avoid by staying away from some of that darker path. But, you know, those things are out there and um, they're very real. And uh, I, I, I take your question to heart. I'm going to give that a lot of thought. Uh, When
5: people Mm -hmm. ask me that question, I often ask them, what do you learn from that substance? How has that substance enhanced your life, helped you manifest what you want in your life? And when I'm at cocktail parties, and people offer me alcohol, I'm not a big fan of alcohol, I say, you know, it's such an inferior drug. It teaches me so little. I really prefer cannabis. Could we go and smoke some cannabis?
8: Thank you. I I feel that everything that you've said has resonated with me. And... um, Specifically, um, I've spent some time at the Black Oak Ranch. And I feel like that land is really infused with some pretty sacred energy. And like Kat was saying, there's um, an energetic consciousness, I guess, that comes from doing that work that I feel that you can experience without actually ingesting anything. Mm -hmm. And um, so my question, I guess, is kind of relevant to the last question. just about being able to experience the benefits of the knowledge that plant medicine provides um, from the experiences of people who've gone before and just increasing our sensitivity to mm-hmm. communication with plants. Because um, through the Women's Herbal Symposium, we've done a lot of sham- um, shamanic work with with plants and not taken anything. And I feel like I've been in a lot of altered mm-hmm. states um, just from gathering with women. And so I'm curious to hear from you women um, other experiences or, or perhaps rituals um, or practices that you use that don't involve ingestion that you've learned from the plants that you've um, used? Mm-hmm.
4: For me, real deep psychedelic experiences need to be private. I am not really too eager to have them in a, a group context except in a very carefully selected structured environment. and. Uh, that's almost never um, available in, in our social environment. So, but what I think, you know, I, I keep throwing out all these quotations, but I think this one is Alan Watts, who said, uh, when you get the message, hang up the phone. Um, <laughs> you know, you can recognize that there is a perceptual capacity. These, these sacred medicines are a good tool for helping you get the door open to see that there's something there but once you have seen that you still have to do the work of developing the ability to function in that perceptual reality and you can do that the 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 if you it's like going back to the i ching over and over and over if you keep if you don't pay attention to what you got the last time you might get an an answer the next time that's like what are you doing here you know like you didn't you weren't listening or something you know and i think this is sort of susceptible to that also. I think you have to do the work.
3: And I think there's a tremendous amount that you can do with, in the world of plants uh, with no enhancement personnel enhancement whatsoever. It, you know, for me, plants speak loudly once I slow down enough to listen. But the whole thing about slowing down is you really have to slow down a lot. You have to stop and just stand there and look at the plants and just wait for the information to kind of flow in, and it, it takes some time. <laughs> but you know they're speaking to us all the time, and especially having been just been at Black Oak Ranch, there is definitely some some strong plant energy there. We were, we had acorns just raining down on our heads, begging us to take them home and plant them,
0: please.
3: Please, said the oak trees, take our acorns and plant them because our environment is constantly shrinking and we want to live as a species. And so that really is our job as the great plant disseminators to help these plants live as, as beings, as part of the earth and the biosphere and so on. We are now the people that carry that. We carry that burden of, of looking after these plants.
5: I'd like to add that when we we gather um, at the Women's Visionary Congress, we recognize that medicine plants and other psychedelic substances are not the only way to attain altered states. If you are able to enter an altered state through prayer and meditation, or yoga, or sex, or chocolate, We just had some chocolate. So we're in a slightly altered state up here. Um, Then good for you. The question is, what do you learn from that altered state and how can
2: you apply that wisdom to your life? And I'd like to give a little part of an answer to that um, too uh, because I think part of the question was what do you gather when you're in that state that affects your life? In relationship to plants or other things when you're not in it and um, I'd say you know well we we all think of it as a journey and part of that journey is is the gathering learning while I'm out there and there are um, these time-honored universal techniques for for dropping in as it's called for dropping deep down inside for invocation for smudging and cleansing for the feeling of being cleansed by a wing by herbs when you're in that state if you really tune in to you try these things or have someone do it with you and you treat someone else and they treat you during that state you learn kind of the you know the underground river of that action in that time when you're in that state and then you'll always know it if you never took a psychedelic, again, you really learned how to smudge someone. You really learned how to let go, how to surrender, how to feel trust in the universe for a few minutes and what that feels like. And you can return there then whenever you remember that it's possible for the rest of your life. So there are there are things to be learned there that I think can be learned in a really deep and useful way and then carried on.
4: I find I have to watch that, actually. That, you have to watch that. That, that? I have to watch it because, like... I'm sorry, Grateful Dead music, Uh, you know, like, I can, I can listen to, I can't listen to it in the car, because I would drive off the road. Um, uh, The thing I was really thinking of, though, is a peyote fan. If you've ever held a peyote fan, there's a sound that the feathers make where they kind of squeak together, and it's just about the most psychedelic sound in the world. It's just, like, you just shake it like this, and it makes this little squeaky sound, and you're out there.
2: Well, don't do that while driving. (laughs)
1: Yes. Do any of you have knowledge of indigenous
4: use of peyote during childbirth? That's what I was talking about when I said a cultural container. Yeah. I, I feel very confident. I used to go out in the Native American community as a funder for a foundation and give out money. And I was perfectly happy to represent that fo- the foundation in the Indian community. Mm-hmm. But I told the foundation if they wanted representation from the Indian community, they had to get some Indians to talk about it. And I would suggest that the place to find that out is from somebody who has peyote wisdom that's part of their tradition.
1: Yeah, I had an experience. I've had, as a midwife, I've had a few clients that have been involved with the Native American church and spoken of their past experience taking peyote with birth. Myself, I'm not comfortable with it because- Are are you a midwife? I am, but I'm not comfortable with with it because I don't have that knowledge. And so if somebody's taking peyote, then I can't use my herbal tinctures, I can't use my homeopathy. You know, the the allies that I'm familiar with, I don't know how to do that dance for them or how it would work for them. And recently I had an experience where somebody in desperation before transport drank quite a bit of tea and ended up with back-to-back contractions like I've never seen, mm-hmm. you know? And it just, this, for her situation, it was very disturbing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't with my agreement, but I, I just wondered if you knew, it. I mean, of course, go to the indigenous people. And this was somebody who had received information, casual information, mm-hmm. from an indigenous person.
4: But you know, this theme, this theme keeps coming up. This yeah. is not a light matter. This is a heavy matter. Yeah. It's so a very heavy
3: matter. Yeah, we'd trend. like you to come and find yeah. us after, the, after this show and talk to us a little more.
2: OK. Yeah, because yeah. we actually have to stop. Uh, we're
3: overdue.
2: And we have to stop and maybe one more question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one more can come, OK? They said we can go to 10 uh,
6: Thank you so much. I want to thank you and the little medicinas. Um, I live, I've lived in the Emerald Triangle for a long time, and I kind of like to invoke John Mohawk in this question because he would often talk both about tobacco and corn, and how when you abuse and misuse the gods and goddesses of the plant world, they come back and bite you in the butt. And I have a lot of sadness, grief, uh, indignation about the type of growing practices of cannabis that are happening in our communities, and my question is, I mean, we all do what we can in the political arena and when we can talk one-on-one with people, but in that interdimensional world of actually speaking with the plants, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, of what kind of prayers to offer up um, to really acknowledge this and to really ask for forgiveness.
3: Yeah, I'm not sure I fully understand your question. I, I, what I want to say is that... Um, when well, I, my
6: concern is that be, besides all the wonderful things we know about cannabis, mm-hmm. that because of these gross abuses, that sh- mm, the, her willingness to be aligned with us um, may change.
3: Ah. Mm. Oh, cannabis, it's the most Christian of plants. It's so kind, it's so feminine, it's so beautiful. It, I share your dismay about some of the, some of the growing practices, um, organic from the core. And it, it just, it seems to me that your prayer, your concern, your consciousness of this, all you can do is speak your truth to, to to your, whoever you come in contact with who might be, who might be growing or, or uh, getting ready to grow. And just talk to them about their practices and about, about organic gardening and about our deep connection with, with, the, with, the, with the earth through the roots of this plant and what, it, what all those connections mean. I mean, this is a complicated topic. And it, it has roots in, in law enforcement, in, in greed, in, in, you know, the sort of the violence to the earth. I mean, I, I just cringe when I think about some of the stuff that's getting done with our taxpayer money in South America, where they spray huge swaths of the jungle to make sure nobody can grow coca there, or then more, whatever's happening in Afghanistan with their plant. It's, you know, we're in this culture. We're in a culture of death. And, and, you know, we we got to pray for life. And you know, we are about life.
5: Yes. I think it's hard. I, I won't even try to top that. But all I'll say is that in the next few years, when cannabis prohibition ends in the state of California, and it will, it will, then this conversation will move forward into a new and interesting place. Mm
2: Thank you everybody for your attention and thank you to these three wonderful women. Thanks.